Hello and welcome back to the March of History podcast. I am your host, as always, Trevor Furness. My brother and co-host, Brandon Furness, cannot be here today, but he should be in next episode. If you haven't noticed yet, this podcast is kind of, uh, I'd call it my baby, my dream, my uh, creation. And, and Brendan's uh, been very supportive and offered to help and, and jump in when he can. He's got a busy schedule himself, so he's not going to be able to jump into every episode. He finds the topics interesting as well, and uh, hopefully he'll be able to, to, to join me for next episode. But just going forward, no, sometimes it'll be only me, sometimes it'll be both of us but I'm going to try to give you a good episode regardless. Now, I'm trying a few different things with the audio as well, uh, moving the microphone around, seeing if that makes any difference from the listener's perspective. So if things are changing from episode to episode with the audio, that's why we'll get it down to a science eventually. Now, enough of all that. Back to the history at hand. The past few episodes of March of History we really haven't progressed Julius Caesar's storyline very much. We've been introducing alter or additional characters that are heavily involved in his story. We've been talking about Roman society in general. We talked last episode about some of the women in Julius Caesar's wives and his relationship to them. But we haven't progressed the storyline narrative. So we're going to do some of that today. Some really interesting things begin to happen. His life begins to, I guess, he comes to the point where he joins the political fray and begins running for the offices on the way to the top. Now, he's already been elected to military tribune, but that's almost like a junior post, and that's not really counted as uh, one of the, the senatorial election posts. Now... He hasn't been sitting there quiet, you know, since his time as military tribune and during his time as military tribune. In fact, as military tribune, Caesar was helping to undo some of Sola's regime's legislation, some of the legislation that Sola himself passed, for example, limiting the powers of the tribune of the plebs. He's speaking in support of these things. He also speaks in support of a bill to bring back a number of the exiles that were exiled under the Sola regime, including Julius Caesar's brother-in-law. So he's making himself stand out in Rome among the people as somebody that's standing up against the current reigning regime. Again, it is a republic, but this is a republic shortly after the rule of the dictatorship of Lucius Cornelius Sola. So it's not your normal republic, and and you know before he retired from power, he stacked it with all of his supporters, and it's been you know a number of years, or actually a few decades since then. But when you pack the government with your supporters, guess who they pick as their successors? Their supporters, you know, and and it keeps on going that way. And the Populari Party, which Caesar sees himself as heir to, both because he's the nephew of the great Gaius Marius, and just because of who he is personally, you know, he's a very affable, personable person. He loves the people. You know, he grew up in an area and in kind of like the slums where he was around the people. He's, he sees himself t as the successor to this broken party, the Populares, and that means that they, they gather their, you know, their power and their, and from the populace, from the, from the people, versus the Optimates, or the bony is what the other party's called, and that was Solo's party. So he's finding little ways to make himself stand out as 
an up-and-coming popularity, which Sola was looking to stamp out that tradition altogether. So he's saying, no, it hasn't died. We're still here. And he's, I'm sure, making enemies in the government by doing this. You know, he's certainly not making himself, making himself liked by the current regime. But the people are noticing, and they're beginning to like him, him for it. Now, after the Spartacus War, and after the, they call it the Great Slave Revolt, was put down by Crassus and very minimally by Pompey, they joined together, and even though, as Tom Holland says in his book, Rubicon, if there was one thing that could be sure in Roman politics, it was that whatever side Pompey was on, Crassus was on the opposite, and whatever side Crassus was on, Pompey was on the opposite. But they managed to reconcile themselves for to come together and be joint consuls for the year after that revolt, or shortly after that revolt. Now, those two joined together and kind of got over their differences and became consul. And the only reason I mention that is it's not really important to Caesar's story at this point, but it will be important in the future. So I just want you guys to know that. You know, they were consuls together. They served together. Uh, and like I said, they're a few years ahead of Caesar. Now, Caesar begins to continue to progress in his career. He reaches the age of 30. This is the minimal age set by Sola and his regime for him to run for the position of quaestor. And as soon as you are elected quaestor, you are automatically enrolled in the Senate. So that's a big deal. So this is, you know, 30 years old is when you can become the you can run for election for the very first position of political office and it's also what will get you into the Senate. So Caesar runs for this at the age of 30 in the year 70 BC. Now the quaestorship is, like I said, it's the first real rung on the political ladder. There's 20 quaestorship positions open, at least at this point in Roman history. So not a lot considering how big the city is. But, you know, not everybody can run for these positions. Usually you have to have some kind of money, some kind of influence, some kind of family background. And they dealt with a, a number of financial and administrative tasks around the city of Rome. Even the Romans themselves don't seem to be particularly interested with the role of the quaestor or, you know, what people did when they were quaestor just because it is a very junior role. It's not a very exciting role. You know, not a lot of power involved in it. But still, for a young man on the make, it's a big thing. And so Caesar runs for this election, and he's got a lot going for him. Remember, he's already a war hero. He's won the civic crown. He's fought in the east in the military. He's fought in probably the with Crassus against the uh, Spartacus Rebellion. He's a gifted orator in the, in the law courts. He's somebody that dresses distinctively. He's got a lot of style. He's got a lot of personality, a lot of charm, you know, he's constantly going around to the people, the people know him, so he's got a lot of good things going for him coming into this election, and he gets elected, and this means that he's elected in his year, which is important, so the second you turn 30, or whatever year you turn 30, you could run for quaestor. Now, not everybody that runs actually gets the position. And if you don't get the position, well, what do you do? You run next year. And if you were to get it the next year when you're 31 years old, you would have become a quaestor, but not in your year. In your year essentially means that you did, you became that position or were elected for that position the at the earliest possible age. 
And it's a great point of pride for a lot of Roman senators, or not a lot, but a few that have done it, to say, I was elected to every position on the political ladder in my year, or whatever the Latin equivalent of, of that is. I, I know it somewhat, but I'm not going to try and butcher it off the top of my head. So Caesar's elected in his year, so that's a big thing for him, and this means that he's definitely enrolled in the Senate. It's possible that when he won the civic crown, back when he was in his early 20s, that he was enrolled in the Senate back then by virtue of having this distinction. We aren't certain. If he wasn't enrolled then, then he definitely is now. Now, just a kind of a fun fact for the audience out there. When Romans ran for office, they wore a specially whitened toga. This toga made them stand out as they walked around the forum with their fellow, uh, with their supporters, with their clients, with their fellow senators, maybe even higher distinction that supported them, and it made them stand out as the person running for office. This toga, this bright white toga, was called a toga candidus, and the word candidus is where we get the word candidate from for today for in, in English. So when we say, oh, he's a political, or he or she is a political candidate, that comes from that Roman toga candidus, that bright white toga that made you stand out and let everybody know that you were running for office. So they would wear their bright white toga, they'd walk, they'd strut around the forum, they'd shake hands, they'd kiss babies, they'd, they'd make sure that people saw them and make sure that they were seen with the right people. You know, all to convince the electorate that they were somebody worth putting in office and that they were a winner. You know, not much different than democracies nowadays. In fact, very similar. That's one of the things I love about ancient Rome is that there are so many similar similarities, especially with the Republic, to republics today. Money in politics was a problem back then and it's a problem today. Corruption is a problem back then. It's a problem today. Uh, all the same crazy things you see candidates do running for office today, you can see the same scandals and, and the same bizarre things going on back then. It is remarkably similar to what happens today. And you'll, and you'll see that with some of the stories I tell you as we go through this. Now, I at least was not able to find much of what Caesar accomplished during his quaestorship. Again, it's not a major position. It's it's not a glorious, you know, he's not leading armies in the field or anything like that. But some major things do happen during this time that he has his quaestorship in 70 BC. Again, he's 30 years old. So Caesar's, his aunt, his aunt Julia, who was married to Marius, and his wife, Cornelia, this is the same wife that Sola told him to, ref to divorce and, and Caesar refused. She is the daughter of Cinna, who was one of Marius's or Marius's chief ally and opponent of Sola. She dies as well. So it was Aunt Julia and his wife of what now? Maybe, well, he probably married her when you're 16. So maybe a wife of 14, 15 years. They both die in the same year. Now, he was very close to his Aunt Julia, and as far as we can tell, he definitely had affection for his wife, although he wasn't loyal in today's sense of the word, but you know, I don't think that you can always, or I don't think that you can really ever apply 2020 or whatever year you're in standards to you know, a time that was 2,000 years ago. But anyway, that's, that's an argument for another day that Brendan and I can talk about. So the Romans, when they had funerals, 
and they often did so the, the the larger families would have very public funerals the aristocratic families would have these big public pageantry funerals where they would have actors hired to wear wax death masks of their ancestors and wear all of the regalia of office and pretend to be their ancestor it's a really wild image. So when a Roman died, they would take a death mask of them, or at least when an aristocratic Roman died, which meant they would pour wax over their face and it would create a mold of their face and they would put these masks in, say, a certain room in their, in, in their, in their house or maybe in the hallway, and these would be all the masks of the great ancestors of the past. Not anybody got a death mask, usually people of, of achievement. And they would show these to their kids when they were growing up, and the kids would were supposed to be inspired by these great achievements, these faces staring back at them, challenging them to achieve similar status or greater status than their ancestors had. So they kept these masks, and they were very proud of them, and they would display them for all to see. You know, they were very social people. They were constantly having dinner guests over and people over, and people would see wow, these are the accomplishments of all your ancestors. And the more illustrious your family, the more masks you would have up there. And you would know the story of every single one of them and all their accomplishments. And they would break out these masks for a major funeral and hire the top actors of the day to act as these ancestors in these funeral processions. They would even hire mourners, like people that were professionally paid to cry and scream and tear their hair out and beat their chest and and cause a whole commotion and i think it was, i believe i remember reading that the more you pay like each one of these services costs you additional money you just want them to cry that's one thing you want them to scream and yell it's another price if you want them to beat their chest and tear their hair out that's an additional price so talk about a wild job so the Romans, like with everything, they had they were experts at pageantry and, and, and making a splash and a show. So these funerals, yes, they were sad occasions, but they were also, as with everything with the Romans, politics is mixed in. They're not just funerals. Public life and private life are not separate. They are one and the same. And so they'll use these funerals to advertise their family and their family's brand and to remind the people who they are and what they've achieved and who their ancestors are. And this can go a long way for, say, you have another family member with an election coming up next year. People will remember, oh, yeah, that's right, the the Julius Caesars, they... You know, I remember he gave that great speech about his ancestors uh, like last year. And then, you you know, it causes for the same reasons that companies constantly advertise today. You know, they want to stay top of mind. And when they got to the forum, whoever the paterfamilias was or the, the, the male head of the household would give a speech extolling the virtues and achievements of specifically the person who had died, but also... All of the other family members, all these other wax masks being worn by actors, and they would remind the audience of the achievements of all these people, and in extension, the illustriousness of their own bloodline, and pump themselves up, basically, by pumping up their ancestors. Now, it was not unusual in Roman times for somebody to give one of these speeches about a matron of the family, so, like you know, an older woman that had been with the family 
for many, many years and, and I'm sure done many great services for the family, that was common in ancient Rome. It was not only uncommon, it was unheard of. In fact, had never been done before, according to one source, to give such a speech for a young woman like Caesar's wife, Cornelia. That was unheard of. And Caesar breaks the mold in that. And he's, I think it's Plutarch says that he's the first Roman to ever give a funeral speech oration about a young bride. And, and I just, I think that's very interesting that he would break the mold so much that nobody in the hundreds of years of the Republic had thought to do that before. Or if they had wanted to do that, hadn't had the courage to do that because they thought that people would look down on them. They thought that people would say that they're breaking tradition. Who knows what had held them back, but nobody had done that before. So Caesar gets up there and he gives this incredible speech. Plutarch, who's a Greek historian from, as I said, I think I said this in an earlier podcast, maybe 150, maybe 200 years after Caesar, but we still call it a primary source. So Plutarch calls it, quote, a magnificent oration. He gets up on the rostra or the stage in the forum, and he begins extolling the virtues of his Aunt Julia. He points out that she was, or that she could claim both quote, the sanctity of kings who reign supreme among mortals and the reverence due to gods who hold even kings in their power. That's what Suetonius tells us, another historian. So let me, let me read that quote for you again. He says to the people that she can claim, quote, sanctity of kings who reign supreme among mortals and the reverence due to gods who hold even kings in their power. Pretty cool stuff, right? But now he's not just saying this about his Aunt Julia. He's saying this about himself because he's the same family. You know, if she's descended from kings and gods, then so is he. So it's kind of like a clever way of reminding the people about himself as well. And if you're wondering what, what kings and what gods he's talking about and where do these pretensions come from, he their family says that they are descended from the or one of the princes of Troy, and I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, i got to start writing this stuff down, that they were descended from a prince of Troy who fled when the Greeks you know, brought in the Trojan horse and burned the city to the ground, fled, settled in Italy, and then kind of helped to found the city of Rome. And then he, in turn, was the son of that prince, Aeneas, was the son of Venus and another Trojan prince. So they have the highest of high pretensions and, and Caesar's reminding everybody. Now, here's the thing. He's also talking about all of his relatives. Well, who's among his relatives? Persona non grata number one, Gaius Marius. Gaius Marius is also his Aunt Julia's husband. So what do you do about that? Do you talk about him? Do you not? You're not supposed to talk about him in Solo's regime. And what Caesar does, and this is a bold and risky move, he brings back all of the images of Marius. He brings back the probably the wax mask with an actor wearing it in all of the regalia. He brings back all of the the war trophies, the, the medals Marius had received, and, and parades them in this funeral pr procession. And none of these things have been seen by anybody in Rome since Sulla took over. 
you know, they thought they probably thought they were lost for all time. And Caesar just had him somewhere and, and brings him out and parades him this way. And some in attendance do not like this. And they begin to cry out that, you know, this is, this is you know, not allowed. He can't be showing icons of Marius like this. And the people reply, the, the general people, the regular common man replies, they all begin to cheer and clap for Caesar and shout down the people saying that this is not allowed. And so the people, you know, recognize that he's, you know, one of them. He's a populare. And yes, Marius has been declared an enemy of the state under Sola's regime. And yes, his entire party, the Populares, were declared enemies of the state. But Caesar's standing up for them and little by little making it okay to identify with that party in public again. And the people, you know, Marius is, is their hero. He, he was, you know, came from nothing in comparison to most of these guys. You know, his family wasn't dirt poor. You know, and it's interesting because his family was probably wealthier than Caesar's. But as far as his ancestors, he had none of any distinction. And oftentimes in Rome, that could matter as much or more than how much money you had. And Marius is a big time hero of the people. And so many people supported the fact that Caesar brought these masks and these icons back. But it, it, it was a move that could have backfired spectacularly in Caesar's face if the regime had decided to crack down on him, maybe arrest him. If the people hadn't been quite so supportive, maybe they would have done that. So again, he's showing that Caesar is showing that he's willing to take risks, calculated risks, calculated gambles again and again if he thinks that it's going to progress his career. And he's very good at choosing the odds on those. Now, as far as Caesar giving a speech about his wife Cornelia too, we don't really have any record of what he said about her, but we do know that the people love the fact that he did this. Rather than it being, oh, well, he broke custom or, you know, why is he talking about this young woman? You know, that's, that's unseemly or, or anything like that. The people felt that this was the heartfelt emotions of a young man that was deeply grieving for his young uh, wife that had, that had died unexpectedly. And the people felt sympathy with him, and they felt that he was somebody that felt like a, like a human being and somebody that they could relate to. And they, and they loved him even more for, for including Cornelia in his funeral oration. Now, those are the main things that happens while Caesar's quaestor that are worth remembering. It weren't even to do with the fact that he was quaestor, but it's just this whole move of, of talking about Marius and all this. It's a continuation. It's, it's, it's setting him up as somebody that stands out from the crowd, that's always doing something interesting, always doing something different, uh, has a great eye for self-publicity, and somebody that's going to carry the standard forward for the Populari Party that many thought was dead altogether. Now, after being quaestor, Caesar gets sent out to the province of further Spain. And this is common. So you would hold a post, quaestor, or maybe it's praetor, or maybe it's consul. And then after that, you would go and you'd work out in the provinces and you'd be a pro-quaestor, a pro-praetor, a pro-consul, or, you know, after quaestor, essentially. And uh, he would serve underneath the governor as a pro-quaestor in the province of further Spain was the southern portion of Spain, I guess you would call it Andalusia today, or at least a portion of it. And then 
nearer Spain, or as the Romans called them, Hispania. Ulterior is further Spain, Hispania, Citerior or Citerior, depending on your Latin pronunciation. Again, mine is terrible. Was nearer Spain, and that stretched down the basically Mediterranean coast of Spain. You can Google these things and pull up a map pretty quickly. I'm not the best describer of maps. But he gets sent to further Spain, and he serves underneath a governor there as his proquaestor. There is a story that when he visits Gades, which is current-day Cadiz, C-A-D-I-Z, he's holding court there because part of the job of the proquaestor was to administer to the finances of the province and some of the administration of the province. And when the governor wasn't there, they might hold court and settle disputes in the governor's name. And it was a opportunity to acquire clients for a young aristocrat to do right by people in the provinces and therefore indebt them to you and enroll them as clients on your book. That way you'd have clients not just in Rome, but also all throughout the empire. And Caesar goes to Gades and he's holding court. And when he's there, he goes to a temple of Hercules. And in the temple of Hercules, there's, there's a famous story. He sees a statue of Alexander the Great. And when he sees this statue, Caesar is visibly distressed or he's upset. He, he looks terribly put out by this. And some people ask him, you know, what is wrong? Essentially, his reply is that at the age of 30, Alexander had conquered most of the known world. What had Caesar done that was at all worthy of history writing about now that he was the age of 31? And he, he, he held himself up in comparison to Alexander and found himself lacking in every regard. And I, I just, this, this story I, I love so much because you have one of the most ambitious, accomplished people of all time. And even he is sitting there comparing himself to somebody else and thinking, wow, I'm not good enough. Julius Caesar, the guy that had everything, that had, was the most talented person I've ever read about in all of history, is sitting there thinking that he isn't good enough. I mean, I think it's, 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 a, it's a lesson to take away about ambition, about the type of ambition it takes to get to the top, and also just about comparing yourself to other people and how you know that can both fuel you on to, to achieve great things but it can also be corrosive. It can also, you know, be harmful to your mental health. And I just think it's fascinating the idea that Julius Caesar, as as talented as he is, is looking at somebody in the past, Alexander the Great, and thinking, I've done nothing compared to that guy. And little does he know what he's going to go on to accomplish and that he's going to be equally, if not more, of a recognizable name in households as Alexander is today. And that's one of the other things that I think is remarkable about, I mean, Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great. Think about, in today's media market, how often you have to be in the news to stay at the top of people's minds. You know, if you haven't done anything on TV, if you've gone on any radio shows, if you're, you know, some kind of celebrity and you've been out of commission and not publicizing yourself for the past five years, it's a good chance a lot of people forgot about you. You know, they hear your name. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that name. 
what's, what's he been up to? You know, we're so quick to forget people and even mega important people from a hundred years ago, people that were essential to their times and had major influences are entirely forgotten. And then I think about Julius Caesar lived over 2000 years ago. And yet he's a household name throughout most of the world today. People may not know exactly what he did. They may not know anything about him, but you say the name Julius Caesar. Oh yeah, they've heard of Julius Caesar. And yet there's people alive today that are living celebrities that are constantly promoting themselves that, you know, I probably haven't heard of because I'm, I'm not in touch with the celebrity world. You know, I'm, I'm not a, a follower of uh, gossip magazines. But my, my point being that this guy hasn't been around to promote himself in 2000 years. And yet he's still a household name, even more so than people that are alive today and on TV. It's remarkable staying power. You know, in, in a world where you can be forgotten in 10 years if you're not out in front of people, he's been gone for over 2,000 years, and he's still a household name. That's remarkable for somebody like him, for Alexander, for any of these guys. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. Now, Caesar does his duties in further Spain. He gains new clients. He makes connections with the governor, uh, with the governor's son, with that whole family. And he eventually, we're told after seeing the statue of Alexander, decides that he needs to kick things into high gear. He needs to do something bold, something drastic if he's going to achieve the heights of, of power, of fame, and of glory that an Alexander the Great did. He can't just keep on going through the laid down Roman path that you run for this election and then you you know wait two years because you're not allowed to run for the next one yet and then you run for the next one and then you wait five years and then you run for the final one. This whole laid out path, Alexander didn't wait for anybody to lay out a path for him. He forced his own way through the wilderness and Caesar's, you know, really having a deep internal crisis about this and thinking, you know, I need to do something drastic. I need to do something exceptional to make myself stand out like an Alexander and to, to kick my career off. So he ends up actually leaving further Spain early before his term was done. Now, he probably didn't do this of his own accord or he, it was his idea, but he would have had to have gotten permission from the governor and as Adrian Gold, Goldsworthy points out in his book, there's really no indication that anybody said that he did a bad job. So it's, it's a good chance that he essentially got the books and the accounts of further Spain in order much quicker than expected. He was a very efficient guy and then had nothing left to do or nothing you know, of, of great achievement. So he asked for permission to leave and so leaves early. And Caesar will leave further Spain and he will head into what is today southern France. And what he does there is what we're going to talk about next time and his further climbing of the political ladder. And if you think it's been interesting up until this point, I promise you the stakes become higher and higher, the risk taken become ever greater, and the story just becomes even more fascinating especially once we begin to see Caesar clash with Cato. 
So if you've enjoyed the podcast up to this point, episode six, stay tuned because things are about to heat up immensely in the next few episodes. Until next time, this is Trevor with March of History.